0: Welcome to the Wellness Plus Podcast, featuring interviews with health and wellness professionals empowering you to take control of your health and happiness. Feel better, look better, and live better today by subscribing right now for new episodes every week. The Wellness Plus Podcast is brought to you by wellnessplus.tv and made possible by the generous donations of Psyche Truth Patreon supporters. Now here's your host, Certified Holistic Health Coach, Karina Rachel.
1: Hello and welcome to the Wellness Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Karina Rachel, and I'm joined today by Jessica Manson. She's a holistic practitioner and licensed acupuncturist, and she's here today to share some health and wellness tips that come both from an Eastern medicine mentality and a Western medicine mentality, kind of the area where both East and West meet and agree. Interestingly enough, we learned in a previous podcast that both Western and Eastern medicine recommends that we eat animal products, contrary to what we've heard in a lot of other areas. So we will be learning about why the body needs animal products and some other health and wellness tips that you can start implementing right now. So Jessica, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Definitely. Can you talk a little bit about your background and why you have chosen to kind of bring uh, the common ground between Eastern and Western medicine? Okay.
2: well, I am a licensed acupuncturist. Uh, I went to AOMA Graduate School of Integrative Medicine and got my degree in acupuncture and oriental medicine there. Uh, I graduated in 2015. Um, before that, I uh, ended up having a bit of a scientific background. Uh, my family is um, mostly scientific. My father's a polymer scientist. And so originally when I thought I would study medicine, I thought I'd be doing something more Western. Um, so I went through uh, all of pre-medicine and did all of that at the University of Texas. Uh, I also did a bit of time in chiropractic college, although that wasn't um, wasn't really what I'd hope it would be, so I turned to acupuncture instead. Um, All that experience kind of gave me um, a passion for Western medicine. There's a a lot of it that's uh, really fascinating and really wise and really true. Uh, However, once I uh, came into the world of Eastern medicine, uh, that – entirely turned uh what I thought about the body and about therapies kind of on its head Mm. and uh at first I was like wow this is just kind of weird but really um once I kind of got through the weeds it it all made sense even even when I looked at it from a context of western medicine too so there's a whole lot of areas of common ground Mm. um I'm lucky I also work very closely with a physician who um, does a lot of traditional kind of Western medicine type uh, procedures and things like that. But he's also very well versed in acupuncture, naturopathy, and uh, things like Tai Chi and Qigong. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so knowing him has also really advanced my practice and allowed me to have a very integrative perspective.
1: Mm-hmm. And then in the previous podcast, uh, you had talked about how it was your own um, health struggles, so to speak, that kind of brought you into Eastern medicine, mm-hmm. and you had actually approached it uh, with a lot of skepticism. Absolutely. Um, so mm-hmm. you want to talk just a little bit about that? Because I think it's so interesting, not only to have somebody who um, has now devoted themselves to these you know more holistic and natural approaches to health, but that before you... Um, made that decision or made that transition, you were actually quite a skeptic. Oh, yes.
2: (laughs) Absolutely, yes. I was very skeptical of anything that wasn't double-blind, randomized, control trial proven. Um, (laughs) And uh, so, so, yeah, I I got a gift certificate to go to an acupuncturist for my birthday one year, and I had a million and one problems. And uh, I didn't think that acupuncture would really do anything for me, but... I wanted to be nice to the person who gave me the gift certificate, and so I went anyway. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, yeah, the acupuncturist told me that I should notice some significant changes within 24 hours of my treatment, and I didn't believe it at all and told myself, well, if anything happens, I know it's not placebo because I think that this is gonna do absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and (laughs) sure enough, I noticed some major changes within six hours and I was really, really shocked. And the more I returned to see this acupuncturist, the better I got. And so that really got my attention, you know, thinking that, you know, I was so kind of rooted in this mechanistic, uh, view of, of the body and of the world that it was like, you know, There might be something to this holistic stuff. There might be (laughs) something to that. Uh, And so that really got me thinking. And and after I really got my health back over the next few years, um, it it made me even more passionate because I found that the changes that I was making in other areas of my life, like exercise or diet or whatever, um, tended to make me do better with my acupuncture treatments or Mm. do better with, uh, you know, uh, across the board. And so I was like, wow, okay, I I truly can't do something in isolation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as I went and I, I went through um, pre-medicine and uh, learned about biology and learned about having to be in a molecular biology at the same time I was taking a psychology course. And uh, so we were learning about sugar metabolism. And at the same time in psychology, we were learning about addiction. And so I was looking at how sugar is metabolized molecularly in the body and what type of cellular response it makes. And then in psychology, I was looking at addictive behavior and, like, what certain types of biological responses can create addictive behavior. And Mm. I was like, wow. No wonder I feel so out of control with sugar. (laughs) (laughs) And so that really kind of got me thinking even more. I was like, wow, you know, even these... um, you know, these very, you know, biomedical-oriented uh, type things kind of explain each other. Mm. And you wouldn't think that, um, that, you know, your sugar metabolism can explain how you think or why you do what you do. And yet, if we really delve into both, they're very interrelated. And interestingly, Chinese medicine and other integrative therapies mm-hmm. uh, have known this for a long time. and have preached this for a long time. Um, So it was just kind of a logical step for me to go into
1: uh, an approach that's more holistic.
3: Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. So to kind of dive into these um, health and wellness recommendations, um, one of the topics that came up in the previous podcast, um, you were talking about animal products and the body's need for them and how interestingly this is one of those recommendations that uh, is – in agreement from both the Eastern and Western modalities. Yes. Um, So let's go ahead and I guess take that piece. Can you talk about animal products for our health?
2: Well, I think I'll start with kind of the basic health and dietary recommendations that you you should have for a good, good long life. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, eat real food, don't eat too much, and eat mostly plants. So um so i think that uh that really covers it i mean when we say real food that means something that if you had the best garden in the world that had every plant and every food animal you could you could imagine in your backyard and you had the kitchen at home that you have now if you could walk in your backyard go and uh pick your dinner or, you know, kill and cook your dinner and do that within two hours, that's real food. Um, So, you know, if I needed to, uh, you know, if I wanted to make myself broccoli, I can go pick some broccoli. And if I want a steak, I could go and butcher myself a steak and cook that in the kitchen that I have now in about two hours. That's real food. Granted, I don't think that I could end up making a Cheeto.
1: Um, <laughs> Although so, there are some fun shows yes. where they actually do challenge chefs to try and make those processed that's, foods. That's right. But, you know, even
2: if I uh, even if I really wanted to make a Cheeto, I'd be having to go, like, pick the corn, dry the corn, grind the corn up into a paste, and then mix it with a bunch of stuff. And then to make the cheese powder, I don't even know how I'd do that. I'd have to go and I bet it the doesn't cow. have cheese in it. I, I don't guess. think it has cheese in it. And... You know, but, but, but even then I'd have to like go make cheese, which would take me several months to do, mm-hmm. and then dry it out and make the cheese powder and call that a Cheeto maybe. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how you can define real food. Mm-hmm. Don't eat too much. That's kind of self-explanatory. And then mostly plants. So if we look at how our bodies are evolved, we're meant to be omnivores. Um, so uh, if we look at the human mouth, Um, We have uh, a mix of molars that are grinders for uh, fibrous plant matter, Mm -hmm. and we also have um, uh, some in the front of our teeth that are more for ripping and tearing meat, our canine teeth specifically. Um, So if we look at mouths of other animals, like, uh, say, horses or cows, uh, their entire... mouth their entire dental structure is all full of flat grinding teeth because they eat plant matter exclusively they don't ever eat animal matter.
3: Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: Similarly if we look at a obligate carnivore like a cat or a lion uh, they have no grinding molars because all they eat is meat. Mm -hmm. Uh, For humans we have a mixture of both because we're designed to eat both. Uh, If we go and look at human evolution and kind of bring ourselves back to caveman days uh, we can um, we can imagine that it's a whole lot easier to go and pick some plant matter and kind of snack on that most of the time because it's a whole lot easier than going and finding an animal and hunting it down and killing it, butchering it, and cooking it. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be eating, by far, mostly plants. However, if we, uh, you know, encounter, a rough season, if it's too hot or too cold or too dry or plants become scarce for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. um, then that's when we will be turning to animal protein. Um, And so uh, that's, that's where it becomes worth the effort to go on a hunt. Um, Similarly, if we look at uh, the human body structure, um, we are meant to be persistence hunters, which is why um, we're quite good at long distance running, actually Mm. better than any other animal. Um, So we're able to run longer distances without fatigue, um, more so than, than any other animal. So that would allow us to continue to track animals until they became exhausted and we could end up having our dinner. Um, So for this reason, you know, we're really meant to have, I'd say, about 80% plant matter in our diet. Uh, Plants do have a lot of really essential nutrients, you know, and and a lot of fiber that we can't get from animal sources. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we need a lot of fiber to keep things moving through our gut and keep our gut healthy. Uh, We also get higher concentrations of things like vitamin C uh, from plant matter rather than animal matter. Um, however, there's some essential nutrients in animal tissues that we cannot get from plants. So, um, for instance, uh, long-chain uh, fatty acids, uh, we cannot get from a plant source. Um, so we'll take fish oil, for example. Um, those are all long-chain fatty acids, the DHA and EPA, that are in fish oil that help with brain health and nerve conduction health. Uh, they are called essential fatty acids because they are absolutely essential for life. Mm-hmm. Um Many people who are, um, you know, anti-animal protein will say, oh, well, we can combine medium chain or short chain fatty acids um, to make long chain fatty acids. And so therefore, flax oil can substitute for fish oil because we'll just combine it and make more. Um, my response to that is that's all lovely. Um, however, that's a huge metabolic debt on your body. Mm. So your body has to work very hard to create a nutrient rather than you giving it to it.
3: Right. Um,
2: that therefore stresses the system heavily. Uh, and uh, even though you will end up getting your fat, it's at a high price, and that um, ends up ends up taking away energy that could be used to heal other things, Mm. or to um, power other metabolic processes. So it's sort of like, um, you know, if I were to use my emergency brake, every time I decided to stop my car, I can stop my car that way. But it's going to have a whole lot of mechanical wear on the car. Mm. Um, And so, uh, so that is true, especially things, you know, like, uh, branch chain amino acids, uh, long chain fatty acids um, that we can synthesize uh, in our bodies, but it's just it's at a high metabolic price. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that, and you know, I, I find that uh, supplementing animal tissues especially this kind of goes back to Chinese medicine, Um, although in kind of ancient Western herbalism, this is also true. Um, There's a big movement of eating the tissue to treat the tissue. Mm. And so say like if I have a muscle pain uh, I can treat that by eating muscle of another animal. If I have uh, bone-level pain, I can treat that by eating bone or a heart problem by eating heart. And mm-hmm. we we look at this and, you know, uh, I'd say the, the ancient wisdom kind of just took it for granted. It's like, well, your heart doesn't work, so just eat some heart. Duh. Uh, but if we look at this kind of why does this work, mm-hmm. um, say if I have a heart problem, uh, I can... I can make new heart cells. That's something that my my body can do and replace the damaged ones. Mm-hmm. Um, however, for me to do that, I need certain building blocks in order to create a heart cell. So say I need building blocks A, B, and C in order to create a heart cell. Um, I could feasibly get, we'll say, three units of A from spinach and five units of B from beef and uh, ten units of C from, from eggs, let's say. hmm But even though I've got 10 units of C, I've only got three units of heart tissue that I can make because A is my limiting factor. I've Mm. only got three units of A. So I end up kind of wasting all the rest of that C that I've accumulated, and I'm inefficient at creating new heart tissue. Mm. Um, Conversely, if I eat heart tissue from another animal, What that allows me to do is I get all of the building blocks, all the enzymes, all the proteins, all the minerals, all the cofactors, all the essential fats that a heart needs are all in that heart tissue. Hmm. And so I've got A, B, and C all in the exact perfect ratio so I can take 100% of the nutrient that I get from heart source from another animal and convert that with a near 100% efficiency into new heart tissue for myself. Um, This is why I use a lot of desiccated organ meats in my practice uh, in order to help um, heal tissues that have been damaged. Mm -hmm. And I find that um, while we can support the healing process with purely vegetarian sources, it's just much less efficient. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for instance, I had a gentleman who uh, came in to see me who had a certain um, back pain due to uh, a slip disc injury. And uh, he was a vegan gentleman, and I've seen slip disc before. I've treated a lot of them, and. Uh Typically, I'd say people respond within a couple of weeks for Mm -hmm. most of my patients. Um, This gentleman, despite his best efforts, took about 18 months to have a response. Oh, my. And that's mostly because he was very adamant about not including any kind of animal products in his diet. And and while I respect his decision, um, I think that that is really why he had um, a much slower healing response than Mm. some of his peers. Um, He just didn't have the nutritional building block to create new tissue or to maintain any type of structural change that we induced with acupuncture or laser therapy or anything else. And so it's very hard, you know, like if someone comes and says, well, I need you to build a brick house, but no bricks. Um, You know, I I feel like uh, veganism um, very much uh, kind of gives that same proposition. Mm. It's uh, building a brick house with no bricks. Um, and, And while you can build a house, and maybe it will sort of look like it's got bricks. Um, <laughs> it's
1: not going to be exactly the same as a brick house. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So so then you recommend um, organ meats. I do. Um, what about things like uh, bone broth is becoming really popular right oh, now? I
2: think that's like the best trend that has hit the world in a really long time. Uh, <laughs> I'm so happy to see everybody getting on the bone broth train. Uh, <laughs> when I was uh, beginning... Uh, acupuncture school on the first day of my first class my professor told me for a long life you need to eat bone broth every day one cup of bone broth at least and I kind of sat there and I thought to myself what does that mean and why and he tells me well it increases your jing which uh, jing according to the Chinese is your kind of vital substance or your life force Mm. and you know and kind of coming from the scientific background I do I kind of thought to myself well surely there has to be like a biological reason for this. Mm-hmm. And it took me until I really graduated and got out uh, into practice um, that uh, I realized, well, uh, bone broth is absolutely essential for your health. And, and the reason why is that whenever you, um, you go and you stew the bone, you're getting uh, collagen, which is um, a protein source that's absolutely essential for creation of connective tissue. Uh, if we look at the functions of connective tissue, uh, it goes and it's sort of like the glue that holds you together. Mm. So it comprises your skin, hair, nails the lining of your GI tract, um, a lot of your nervous tissue, brain tissue, uh, your blood vessels. Um, It's absolutely essential for keeping things uh, moving well, especially with joint health, too. Mm.
3: Um,
2: So not only are you getting um, a good connective tissue support from the periosteum, which is the tissue that surrounds the bone, uh, you're also getting a tremendous amount of minerals, um, which if we look at... um, What's vital for life, uh, calcium, sodium, magnesium, potassium are all present in bone. You mm-hmm. also get a good source of iron if you do uh, bone marrow as well, which can easily be depleted, especially in menstruating women. So, mm-hmm. um... So we get a really good mineral profile from bone. Uh, We also get a lot of good essential fats from bone. So, um, again, uh, our fats allow us to have a a slow burn of calories, allow us to be very efficient in how we're metabolizing our food, Mm. um, and are very utilizable. Um, So people are often surprised. I tell them, you know, eat fat in order to lose fat. But... um, that's, uh, that's totally true. It helps balance out your blood sugar and it gives you essential building blocks, especially for nervous tissue like your brain. Um, so, uh, so yeah, bone broth is one of the very best things that we can do. And uh, it, you know, it, it also is in a super digestible format. Mm. Um, so it, it, you know, whenever you, you boil a bone, you're basically taking all the nutrients out of it and making it into a, a super easily absorbable format. Um, So many people who have uh, digestive problems or have problems absorbing nutrients due to drugs or whatever uh, tend to get a lot of nutrition out of bone broth. Um, Mm. And it also tastes great, too. So I tell people if you're going to do one thing... for your entire life, Uh, make it be a cup of bone broth a day. Uh, Or if you're too lazy to make your own bone broth like me, you can do the uh, powdered collagen. Uh, Collagen hydrolysate uh, tends to give you pretty much the same benefit uh, as a a bone broth does. It's not quite as much on the mineral side Mm -hmm. as a real bone broth would be, but it's pretty close. Um, so that's something that a lot of my patients like because uh, they can mix it in their coffee or tea or a smoothie uh, and it doesn't taste like much. And it's just an easy way to get that uh, protein in, get a good connective tissue support in, and also support all 22 amino acids, which are essential for uh, protein synthesis in the body. Wow.
1: Mm-hmm. And then is bone broth also good for your bones?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'd say that, uh, again, we eat the tissue to treat the tissue. So mm-hmm. if you're having a bony outgrowth like arthritis, uh, I tell my arthritis patients, this is absolutely the number one thing that you need. If you do nothing else, have bone broth, because mm-hmm. what that's going to do is give you Correct amount of nutrient uh, via enzymes, via minerals, via uh, cofactors, uh, proteins, fats um, to uh, create healthy bone and assimilate it well.
1: Interesting. Mm-hmm. And then what about people who maybe are not interested in actually eating the organ meats? Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, so, for those types of people, uh, I recommend a product line that
2: I use heavily in my office. It's called Standard Process. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, what they do is they create uh, desiccated foods. Uh, most of them are a combination of foods which include plant nutrient as well as desiccated organ meats in many of their products. Uh, and they're put into tablets or capsules. And so that way you can get the benefit of having organ meat in your diet without having to go and make yourself a spleen burger for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I would not want to have a spleen burger, although I've seen a picture of one and. I still don't want to have a spleen burger. I I, I
1: didn't even
0: know that existed. (laughs) Well,
2: now you know. (laughs) For for those people who uh, do want to do organ meats, there's a great place to get them. um, If you are interested in eating them, it's called uswellnessmeats.com. And you can order pretty much any organ meat you want that's mostly organic uh, from them, and they'll ship it to your house. Um, So for those people who kind of want to have a culinary adventure, um, there's uswellnessmeats.com.
1: Interesting. Mm-hmm. I feel like there should be a new, like, uh, foodie TV show just centering around organ meats. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, there's actually uh, here in
2: Austin, um, there's a restaurant called Pache that's downtown, uh, and uh, they serve a lot of organ meats and they serve a lot of uh, even like a cooked bone and things like mm. that. So I think it's coming back in popularity. It seems to be a pretty trendy place. So uh, I sometimes
1: refer my patients there too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, getting back to to uh, that recommendation of 80% of the diet is plants. Yes. Um, do you have uh, maybe like a specific meal recommendation or how much per day, you how know, much to per day. kind of turn that into something realistic for people, like how much meat they're eating and how many vegetables?
2: I think basically one serving of vegetables is about the size of a tennis ball. Okay. So, um, I tell people aim for about six servings of vegetable if you can, and maybe one to two servings of meat, which would be about the size of a deck of cards. Okay. Um, so uh, so yeah, you're you're by far outweighing your um, your meat intake with uh, vegetable intake. Um, that being said, I, I do have some people who need a bit higher meat intake just because they have absorption problems. Mm. And so some people do better uh, with protein every meal just because they're not absorbing a lot of the protein. Mm. Um, many people who uh, tend to be more vegetarian uh, end up becoming vegetarian largely because of their problems absorbing and metabolizing protein. Mm. Um I would argue those people need protein even more so than the general population, especially animal protein. Uh, They just also need an enzymatic helper along with it. Mm. Um, So some people need a little bit more, and they just find they don't feel quite as well um, having less. Uh, But I think a good rule of thumb is you want to do about six servings of vegetable, maybe about two servings of of animal protein, be that meat or or eggs or fish. Um, So – so, yeah, uh, that's kind of what I'd recommend there. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And then in terms of the different protein sources, um, chicken, beef, eggs, things like this, mm-hmm. is there something that you recommend or you recommend people vary the types of animal products they're eating? You no, know, I say do what you like. Okay. Um, if you like
2: chicken, eat chicken. If you don't, don't. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that the, the one thing that I do encourage people to do, which I kind of hinted at a little bit earlier, is to eat fats. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a big trend in the 80s talking about a low-fat diet being more heart-healthy. New evidence has shown that uh, that's largely untrue. And by depriving our bodies of fat, um, we're actually encouraging more blood sugar problems. And it's the blood sugar problems that are causing a rise in cholesterol and a rise in systemic inflammation Mm -hmm. that is more heavily correlated to uh, cardiovascular events rather than um low fat and we've been seeing a whole lot of evidence coming uh now that um is really debunking the low fat myth if you will Mm -hmm. Um, so i tell people if you like bacon eat it you know if you want that fatty brisket and you do well digesting it go for it um fats are absolutely essential you know eat the fatty salmon Mm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, eat fat. It's very slow to metabolize and lowers inflammation. Um, even if we look at, in terms of cholesterol from foods, I have a lot of people who are concerned about cholesterol and eating fats. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, what I have to tell them is this, is that cholesterol is used primarily in your body, one, to make hormones and two, to provide a band aid for, um, areas that have been damaged, particularly in blood vessels. So Mm. say if your blood vessel gets damaged, what happens is your liver, which creates cholesterol, sends out a uh, low density cholesterol, which is formerly known as bad cholesterol. That's not really true, but that's what some people will call it. It sends out low density cholesterol to go and patch the wound, it acts like a Band-Aid. And then once that damage is healed, that cholesterol reforms into a high density cholesterol and comes back to the liver for recycling. Um, So if we go and we look at um, people who have higher or lower levels of cholesterol, um, that is largely due to the amount of inflammation and the amount of damage that they're creating in their body, uh, Mm. which I see more often uh, sugars cause most damage in the body. Mm. So if we have a lot of sugar in our bloodstream, uh, for example, and if that sugar is not well controlled, uh, then that will create damage in our small blood vessels. Which will then increase increase uh, cholesterol um, levels. And uh, we'll end up having a higher low-density cholesterol because we're having to send more out to create repair wow. and a lower high-density cholesterol because we're not sending as much back to the liver for recycling. We're having to send, send stuff out faster than what's coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, we'll see people who are in stages of healing have a, have a higher high-density cholesterol because they're sending all of the cholesterol back at a higher rate than it's going out. Um, so while foods are an important source of cholesterol, just getting cholesterol from your food doesn't mean that your blood level of cholesterol is going to go higher. Uh, it does not mean that, um, you're increasing your cardiovascular risk in so much that, uh, you are, you're lowering your sugar intake. Mm -hmm. Um, and many cardiologists would disagree with this. Um, but, uh, I've seen, a lot of good studies, uh, even in, in reputable journals that do support it.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: so, uh, I do encourage most of my patients when you do eat animal proteins, you know, eat fat. If, if you like full cream in your coffee, go for it. It's better than the skin milk.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. You know, interestingly, I believe it's the um, advanced glycation end products Mm -hmm. um, as your body's breaking down starch, breaking down sugar, that they actually kind of act like sandpaper inside of your blood vessels. Yes, that's exactly Um, it. So interestingly, the recommendations to reduce fat to lower your cholesterol, mm-hmm. that usually tend to make people be eating more starches, more sugars, more grains. That's right. They're actually going to be increasing their cholesterol That's because right. those increased starches in the diet are causing so much damage to the blood vessels, and now your liver is going to be creating more cholesterol mm-hmm. than you were probably eating before. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak to you know for those of, uh, of our listeners who might be listening? Um, and they are very uh, pro-vegan against the animal products, Um, one of the most common things that's often cited is the China study. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's interesting because now we're hearing that traditional Chinese medicine actually recommends you to eat animal products. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the China study? Yeah, a little bit.
2: Um, I do know uh, that the China study came out, and it it, uh, basically... made most of its data by pitting a population of rats that was given um, a plant-based diet against a population of rats that was given uh, an animal protein and plant-based diet. And they showed that cancer levels in the mixed source diet were much higher than the uh, the cancer levels in the plant-based diet. However, uh, the Weston Price Foundation, um, which is a really, um, really great resource and food watchdog group, mm-hmm. um, came out and found that the, um, the food that was given in the mixed diet group was actually contaminated with a mold called aflatoxin, and uh, that the results of that study have not been able to be duplicated outside of an aflatoxin-contaminated food. And, um, so, so yeah, many people who come to my office and tell me, oh, well, the China study means that I'll have less incidence of cancer if I, um, you know, only do plant proteins, uh, that data was entirely falsified due to poor methods. Mm. Um, and, uh, unfortunately it kind of... (laughs) kind of got entrenched in our culture before it was exposed to be the um, the, the errant
1: methods that it had.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I think there's also this, um, you know, strong presence of these different industries. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, beef, dairy, these are huge industries. Sugar industry. Oh, yeah. Big, really big industry. Um, and a lot of those studies that were done that... Um, ended up being used to convince people to stop eating animal meats and to stop eating fats. Mm -hmm. A lot of those studies were actually funded by the sugar industry. That's absolutely true, So it's kind of interesting how we as the consumers are maybe the, um, you know, just kind of the monkey in the middle Mm -hmm. between all these big industry giants. And, you know, when we look at the different dietary recommendations and there's a vast, uh, you know, there are very many – Approaches to diet uh, that often conflict with one another. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of people saying, Oh, it's just overwhelming. You know, one person will tell you to eat this, another person will tell you to eat that. Um, And clearly, I think, you know, it's uh, important to point out that every person is different. Of course. And we're going to have unique dietary Mm -hmm. needs and things like this. um, But also, When it comes to uh, the, you know, big diets that get a lot of attention in the media or where, Mm -hmm. especially when you learn things from TV commercials, Mm -hmm. that a lot of times that's just the marketing from these different big industries coming in rather than, you know, actually coming from people who are genuinely just trying to help support your health. Of course. Um, And that kind of explains why there's a lot of this kind of conflicting information Mm -hmm. that you get. Um, when it comes to things like whether or not to eat meat, etc. Yeah, I,
2: I, you know, I think the best way to kind of figure out what's true in that instance is think about if you're a caveman and you've got a knife and a bow and arrow and that's all you've got, what are you going to be eating? Are you going to be, you know, are you going to be going and, and picking a bunch of rice and hauling the rice and, you know, grinding it up and, you know, processing it to me, that sounds like a lot of work if I'm a caveman and all I've got is a knife. Or am I going to go and cut myself like a piece of fruit or a, a vegetable like a zucchini that I can just pop in my mouth and eat? Mm-hmm. Or you know, am I going to either face starvation and die myself or am I going to decide to go and, and hunt an animal? Um, you know, so I think, you know, the, it, it was a big struggle for me, too, to kind of wade through all these conflicting um, opinions about diet. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, I think that if we look back to our caveman nature, um, the, the, the question kind of answers itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's something that would would be very difficult for us to create or obtain, with minimal tools, we're probably not going to be eating it because that's just too much work. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that, you know, when it comes to knowing what to eat, um, it's more, uh, if you think about it just from how much work does it take to create this? Mm. If the answer is a lot, then probably shouldn't be eating it. Uh, which is why I also do advocate people um, keeping grains to a minimum or even taking grains out of their diet. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at uh, the work that it takes to make a slice of bread, for instance, go and picking each little grain off the wheat stem and then hulling it and then grinding it into flour and then getting eggs and, and combining it into that and then, you know... Uh, cooking it. I mean, this is a a days-long process. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of people tell me, oh, well, we've had bread for thousands of years. That's true. However, that's, in terms of evolutionary time, uh, just a flash in the pan. Right. And so, um, you know, I, I can see, yeah, if you're starving, if it's a famine, will you go through all that work? Absolutely. But if you're in a, you know, if you're in the Garden of Eden and you've got everything you could ever want around you, uh, very unlikely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's how people can kind of wade through that advice. Is you know, imagine yourself primitive camping. You've got a you've got a knife and you've got a bow and arrow and you can cut whatever plant you want and you can make a fire and you know you can you can cook whatever animal you want. And what are you going to choose to do? Mm-hmm. Where's your low hanging fruit? Like in a very literal way,
1: right? Mm-hmm.
0: The podcast you are listening to was brought to you by wellnessplus.tv, a subscription service empowering you with everything you need to take control of your health and happiness. Sign up for your free trial today to watch the video version of this episode and all our podcast episodes. Plus, you'll gain access to our extensive library, including hundreds of follow-along yoga and fitness courses, massage therapy tutorials, weight loss information, guided meditations, educational health videos, and so much more. Feel better, look better, and live better today by visiting wellnessplus.tv.
1: So, you know, I think also there's uh, kind of going back to that, um, I guess, controversy between vegan and animal-based diets um, that... It's not uh, – the recommendation that I'm hearing from you is certainly not to have mostly animal products. Yes. I think it was like 80% <laughs> coming from plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and then your recommendation of meat was uh, like two servings a day but a playing deck size. Yeah, about size. playing card size. And then I think about when you go to a restaurant and you order a steak or a whatever, mm-hmm. maybe that's like six or seven playing decks on one plate yeah. of one meal. Yeah. Um, can you speak about uh, – is it possible to eat too much animal product? What are the effects on the body um, when we're eating, you know, Mm -hmm. much larger portions of animal products Mm -hmm. than you've recommended? Sure. Um,
2: Well, you know, again, I think there are some people who have poor protein digestion um, who might need a higher proportion of protein in their diet, Mm. Um, especially menstruating women who uh, tend to lose a lot of iron may need to have higher sources of red meats in particular in order to maintain adequate iron in their bloodstream. Um, You know, that being said, I think that if you go and you eat barbecue and you don't have any green beans with it, you know, your body should be able to handle that. Uh, Don't do it every day probably, you know, I think really the the damage of eating too much animal protein is, uh, there's really kind of two things that it can do. Um, One is that you're you're not leaving room for all the plant-based nutrients that you need, which are a lot. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just by not getting those in, that's no good um two it can be a stress on our gallbladder so um basically what our gallbladder does is it uh, holds bile which helps emulsify fats uh, when we ingest fats um for people who eat large servings of animal protein a, a lot of times we'll need to put a whole bunch of bile into our digestive tract in order to emulsify the fats um mm. for people who tend to not produce bile very well so those who have liver stresses um Or those who have a weak gallbladder that are prone to stones, um, they often don't do well with higher levels of animal fat just because it puts too much stress on that part of the system, Mm. um... Similarly, our kidneys also metabolize a lot of protein. So for those who have weak kidneys, um, a high protein diet is usually not advisable because that puts more stress on the kidneys. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some people like say those who have gouty arthritis, um, which is caused by the retention of uric acid in the joints. Um, They try and eat what's called a low purine diet, which that's a type of protein that's found in some plants, but mostly in animal proteins. Um, personally I've not seen low purine diets have a lot of effect on gout and in my clinical experience which granted is not a scientific study but um, the patients that I've seen with gouty arthritis tend to do better and have less occurrence of gout if they control their sugar
1: Interesting. Um,
2: so I think, you know, overall, it's a lot more dangerous to be eating too much sugar, starch and grain and processed foods than it is to eat too much animal protein. Mm. Um, you know, can you eat too much? Yeah. If you're excluding other stuff and if you're attacking your gallbladder and kidneys, yeah. But I think that's um, at least in the United States right now, um, that's a much more difficult thing to do than overtaxing your adrenals and your pancreas by
1: eating too much sugar. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, going back to that, uh, you know, kind of point that there's this huge sugar industry mm-hmm. um, perhaps that's why this information about the dangers of starch and sugars is you know so greatly suppressed um, kind of kept from us because I'm keep hearing over and over from you that yeah it's the sugars the starches the blood sugar spikes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the inability of your body to regulate your blood sugar levels because you're eating so many of those high glycemic foods absolutely that is really the you know, one of the biggest dangers. Um, And so all this fixation on whether or not to eat animal products and whether or not to just be vegan is kind of uh, leaving this big open kind of blind spot almost Mm -hmm. on the starches and sugars and especially uh, in the West where the carbohydrates are so greatly processed. Yes, You know, so even... um, you know, you had mentioned a little while ago that people will uh, will often say, well, you know, people have been eating grains for centuries,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: just pointing out that the grains that we're consuming, unless we're going out of our way to have whole grain foods, mm-hmm. um, the enriched flour, the grains and starches and sugars that are in most of the foods we're eating mm-hmm. are unlike any of the grain starches and sugars that were eaten even 100 years ago, Absolutely. much less several hundred years mm-hmm.
2: ago. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, you know, we were speaking earlier, uh, most corn right now is tetraploid, which means it has four copies of DNA rather than just two, which is what a normal um, reproductive species would have. Mm. Um, that's largely due to selective breeding, but it's also been due to genetically genetic modification. Uh, and it's allowed corn to have a higher yield and have a higher um, usable content than uh, non or I guess non-adulterated corn, I'll say, Mm. Um, but uh, there's very little corn now that doesn't have a tetraploid genome, Uh, and many of uh, our corn strains, too, have also been genetically modified with um, Bacillus tetrasensis, I believe is the scientific name of a bacteria um, that helps um, the corn create its own pesticide, uh, mm. So for short, this is called BT corn uh, and it basically has this gene from a bacterium that's inserted into it. So it produces its own repellent for the corn weevil, um, which has been a wonderful thing for farmers because they no longer spray their their products. But at the same time, we're we're ingesting a corn that has a genome that's uh, unlike anything our body knows how to process mm-hmm. um, and uh you know, I I guess going on to GMO foods, I I think that the idea of genetically modifying something is not inherently wrong, like a lot of people would believe. Um, But I think that the uh, consequences that it may have are something that we don't know, Mm -hmm. because our body is only designed to process certain molecules. So not only certain molecules, but molecules that are shaped a certain way. Mm. And if we change the molecule structure, or if we change its shape, Um, then our body doesn't really know what to do with it. And so if it can't get rid of it or metabolize it, it'll just go put it in fat and store it somewhere until, uh, you know, it knows what to do with it. Um, And I think that's a real danger because when we accumulate all these molecules that we can't excrete through our urine or through our feces or through breathing or through our skin and we put them into fat, um, they end up having reactive ends that can react with different receptors, On healthy tissues bind Mm -hmm. them up or change the way those receptors function and then that's where we're looking at um potential problems in terms of uh of uh dna uh synthesis problems like cancer um Mm. and you know and it's not to say like i don't think we've had gmo foods around long enough to go point the finger and say this causes cancer but the likelihood of it causing cancer is high just because we don't know how we don't know how our bodies will be able to handle this, or mm-hmm. if they'll be able to handle handle it. We mm-hmm. don't
1: have a mechanism in place to be able to handle these foods. Right. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, you know, the process of um, approving um, drugs for consumptions, medicine for consumption, mm-hmm. um, involved this really lengthy process of you know testing it for an. Period of time, looking at the long-term effects. Um, although, unfortunately, a lot of those drugs are are not studied for long-term mm-hmm. duration and long-term effects. But taking something like genetically modified foods have very little, or maybe zero, yeah. actual mm-hmm. oversight, overlook in trying to determine how they affect the body.
2: Sure, sure, and you know, and and true to that too. I mean, w- the body is so complex that you know for us to you know even to go point to one mechanism of action is very difficult Hmm. you know there's there's nothing that we can put in the body that doesn't have a multitude of effects
3: right
2: um so you know just like if i were to go and eat something like sugar it has an effect on my pancreas it has an effect on my blood it has an effect on my adrenal glands it has an effect on my liver uh you know and for me to just go and say oh well sugar only affects my pancreas uh, that's a bit short-sighted., mm-hmm. uh, same thing with GMO foods. you know we we even if we were to try and find um, a pathway of metabolism for many of these foods, uh, we likely could come up with one pathway, but that doesn't mean there aren't a dozen others. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And I've also heard that uh, the genetically modified foods um, are not uh, loved by our uh, microbes in the gut, <laughs> the good yep. bacteria, so to speak. So, you know, again, one of these areas that there's not necessarily a lot of uh, ways to go and actually determine that. Um, it's important to recognize that if people are um, observing effects based on dietary changes, or maybe removing things from the diet, that that serves as a, uh, a big insight mm-hmm. Um a lot of times people are, I think, um, kind of fixated on wanting the scientific study that proves the thing or whatever. Um, But there always has to be somebody to fund that study. Yeah. Well, Um, and you know, what I
2: tell people is that there's no double blind randomized control trial that jumping out of an airplane with a parachute will shave your life. And aren't you glad there's not? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, so there's, there's no, I mean, the, the scientific community would not Uh, would not agree that there is a sufficient evidence base for wearing a parachute if you jump out of an airplane. Um, There's,
1: you know, so I use that example. But would you jump out of an airplane without one? Yeah, would you?
2: Would you? (laughs) Um, And so, you know, I think that that speaks a lot to, um, uh, you know, just because the mainstream scientific community hasn't gone and embraced something with open arms and says, well, we don't have enough data, uh, that doesn't mean that we should, you know, brush it off. Right. Um, that doesn't mean that we should go and accept it as fact either. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I think it it uh, it's really up to the consumer of that data to decide what they want to do with it.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you speak more about um, what you were mentioning about the DNA of the corn uh, Mm -hmm. being altered, and then maybe how that translates into uh, recommendations for people? Like, if we're just eating organic foods, Mm -hmm. um, will we be uh, avoiding that? Would you polyploidy?
2: Yeah, the tetraploid tetraploid corn. Um, You know, that's a good question, and I don't know enough about organically farmed corn to answer that. entirely with authority. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe that there are certain strains of corn that are not tetraploid, Mm -hmm. um, and those are more likely to be organic. Um, That being said, (laughs) I did read a study recently that said that they tested a human biome or something like that, um, or maybe it was a genome, I'm not sure, and it said that we are about, the average American is 60% corn, because we are eating corn not only directly through our diet, but we're also eating animals that also uh, have corn-based diets. Right. And so um, a, a whole lot of our bodies right now is comprised of corn. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think that, you know, it's always better to eat organic. Uh, again, that's not always possible, and your body should be able to have enough adaptive capacity to... Um, To deal with a stress, Mm -hmm. to deal with something that it uh, doesn't quite know what to do with. You just don't want to be putting it in that situation all the time. Right. Mm -hmm.
1: So what about the word um, heirloom? You hear Mm -hmm. about heirloom seeds. Would that be a way of knowing that you have seeds that...
2: Maybe, but there's no there's
1: no real teeth
2: in that term. Mm. Um, just sort of like there's no real teeth in the term natural right. or anything like that. Like anybody can use that as a marketing term, and it doesn't mm. necessarily it doesn't necessarily have to hold weight. It doesn't mean that it's not true or it doesn't have meaning, but it, that meaning could vary depending on the source. Right.
3: Um,
2: so I I think that you know. If something calls itself heirloom, it certainly is more likely to be um, uh, to be less modified or um, you know more nutrient dense, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Really, the the only the only terms that really have teeth right now in uh, in U.S. agriculture are, are organic, which means that it's not a genetically modified strain and that it was grown without pesticides for at least three years, um, and uh, then um, the other one is non-GMO, which just means that it's not genetically modified. Uh, right. But it could use pesticides. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. And why exactly, um, can you explain a little bit more about why they would, um, and you said it's through selective breeding that mm-hmm. they create this, so it's not actual uh, genetic modification, like right. taking the bacteria, uh, bacterial DNA and mm-hmm. putting it putting in the it food. In, yeah. um, why they were selective breeding to create this? this Uh, basically creates better yields so just sort of like
2: uh, we would selectively breed a wolf into a chihuahua or into a great dane uh, for a different purpose Um, farmers have selectively bred corn in order to uh, create a different flavor create a different texture uh, create a larger kernel uh, create a higher yield of kernels uh, per corn husk or per per cob Mm -hmm. um so uh so yeah, uh, they might even breed it for p- protein or fat content depending on how that corn will be used either for feed or for uh, human consumption.
1: Right. And then are there other plants that people should be aware of where this uh kind of situation also occurs? Uh, I think
2: uh well, bananas are one. Uh every banana that you eat is a clone. Uh it, all bananas um don't have seeds. And uh, the reason they don't have seeds is because they've been cloned from other banana plants by using cuttings and replanting cuttings. Um, again, this was due to selective breeding uh, to breed out the uh, seed of the banana in order to make it easier to consume.
1: Wow, um, I, I have never seen a banana with a seed. So I know, me neither. Didn't realize. Uh, but if you that... look
2: up if you look up pictures on Google of uh, you know heritage bananas or I don't know what you'd want to call them, um, they do have seeds. Interesting. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I don't think all bananas are bad. Don't get me wrong. And you know, you can get the organic ones, and they're they're good. I mean, just because it's a clone doesn't mean it's bad. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think it's something to be aware of. Yeah. Um, apples tend to have some selective breeding. We've got a lot of different um, varieties of apples, and mm-hmm. they've been heavily selectively bred. Um, which, you know, granted, most of our produce has. I mean, even strawberries have been bred to have smaller and smaller seeds on the outside.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so uh, so yeah, you know, watermelons, same thing. We've bred them to have smaller and smaller seeds as well. That's um, not necessarily a terrible thing. Just like, you know, is a chihuahua a bad thing because it's not a wolf? Um, you know, a chihuahua is a consequence of selective breeding. It's not a wolf, but that doesn't mean that It's bad. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just a different thing. Um, Okay. um, Because whenever they pre-cut them, um, they don't wash the knife. And so the incidence of listeria or bacterial uh, contamination in pre-cut foods is very high. Um, And I even saw, like, I had a bunch of patients this summer who were eating pre-cut watermelon, myself included, uh, who were having digestive upset, and they had a big recall on pre-cut watermelon. And it seems like they do every so often. It's not just watermelon. It's any of the pre-cut fruits. Okay. Um, and it's because they don't wash the, the cutting instruments. So if you do buy food that needs to be cut, cut it yourself. Uh, you know, otherwise you're, um, kind of risking exposure to some not so good bugs.
1: Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what about the pre-washed greens? Like I always see the big boxes yeah, of like pre-washed you know, this and that. Is that- I, I think they're fine. Um, if you're going to cook them,
2: I think mm. if you're going to use them for a salad, you probably ought to wash them again in vinegar. Uh, okay. But if you're going to cook them, you're probably fine. And, and that's kind of the reason why I harp on pre-cut fruit, because you don't cook fruit. Right. Um, and if you cook stuff, like listeria can't survive if you cook it. Um, so as long as you cook your greens, pre-washed is fine. But if you're going to use it as a salad, make sure you wash it again. And, and vinegar is usually the best thing just to like use. Just like white vinegar or yeah. You can just use white vinegar. vinegar, whatever you like. Okay. Doesn't matter. Um, it, it basically just lowers the pH enough to where it can't survive. Okay. Um,
1: so. And then, mm-hmm. so things like pre cut vegetables that you're going to cook. Yeah. If you're going to cook them, okay. fine. If you're going to
2: do them raw, make sure you do a vinegar wash.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. That's, wow, really. fantastic information. (laughs) Um, So to kind of bring it back full circle where Mm -hmm. we began, you know, talking about how uh, the Eastern and Western medicine has a lot of overlap. um, Can you maybe talk about some uh, examples, you know, based on the different topics that we've discussed today? Sure. So like if we come
2: back, you know, my big thing with diet is sugar, because I think that's the most pervasive problem Mm. uh, in the general population right now. And um, so... Yeah, if we look at high glycemic foods, which are things like sugar, starch, grain, alcohol, uh, certain dairy products, processed foods, uh, the Chinese would go and say that all of those foods Uh, do something which is called creating dampness which uh, according to Chinese theory it gunks up your channels and makes it to where things don't move well and and eventually increases like fat uh, deposition on the body and increases inflammation things like that Uh, and so I find it very interesting you know that uh Even the Chinese kind of advocate a low-glycemic diet. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Um, Similarly, the Chinese also advocate a a largely plant-based but occasional animal-sourced diet as well, Um, just like with the bone broth example. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chinese mostly uh, use their foods as herbs, um, and most of the medicinal foods tend to be plant-based. Uh, However, there's certain foods um, that are very, very medicinal uh, for certain purposes that are animal-based. So, for example, uh, shellfish uh, tend to do very well for reproductive problems. Um, Hmm. So uh, I think that's largely due to their uh, mineral content. Uh, It's very good for uh, hormone synthesis and adrenal um, rebuilding in shellfish. Um, So uh, similarly, uh, the Chinese would say, don't eat shrimp if you have a cold. Not exactly sure why that is true, but I did experiment with myself, and one time I had a cold and I ate shrimp, and it did make it worse. Interesting. Um, so, and uh, it's it interesting, too, like um, Chinese will say um, each food will have certain uh, certain temperature and a certain meridians that it goes into, and, and we treat uh, foods very much like herbs. There's really no separation uh, mm-hmm. among them. Um, and so like they talk about a uh, heat based illness, which usually when you have a heat based illness, you have a fever of some kind. And, mm. uh, so they'll, they'll advocate cooling foods like leafy greens, uh, which are high in vitamin C. It can help break a fever. Uh, and they'll also advocate cooling meats like, uh, chicken or duck, um, and if we look at those, which is really interesting, um, those particular meats and bone broth as well, uh, contains a really high amount of immunoglobulins in it, much more so than uh, other types of meats. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, you know, it, it kind of all comes full circle uh, using foods as medicines, uh, both from a Chinese viewpoint as well as a, as a Western molecular um, viewpoint. Wow. And so you think about chicken soup when you're sick. Yeah, it actually works. Uh, And there's a reason that it's chicken and not pork or beef or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, which is really shocking.
1: (laughs) Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Are there any other, I guess, kind of fun food facts that you'd like to share here? Um, Liver's the only source of vitamin B4.
2: If you're not eating liver, you are by definition vitamin B deficient, which is why I advocate either eating dietary liver Um, or uh, doing a desiccated liver supplement. It's absolutely essential. Um, And myself, as well as many patients that I've put on uh, liver products, uh, either dietary or desiccated, um, tend to notice a pretty significant change, uh, both in digestion and then just overall energy. Um, I find it very interesting, like Arnold Schwarzenegger used to talk in the 70s about uh, using liver to help with his athletic performance and energy levels. And it really does um, change the amount of energy level, which I believe is due to a very high portion of B4, which we just don't get from other sources. Mm. Um, so uh, so yeah, I think liver, you know, even uh, back in the old days where they'd give kids, you know, have them stand in line, you have your cod liver oil, you know, um, that's, uh, not only essential for amino acids, but also for vitamin B complex. Mm. Uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, our, our move away from eating liver, uh, in our more modern culture in the last 40, 50 years, um, certainly I think has contributed to some of these long standing illnesses like, uh, autoimmune issues, mm. uh, cancers, uh, things like that. Um, so I think that it's uh, very important for people
1: to have some source of liver in their diet. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think it was off camera that you mentioned this, but you had, you know, mentioned that the liver is often associated with, um, anger mm-hmm. I've heard people say um, gallbladder and liver related to you know feelings of resentment and thing like that you know so kind of thinking about uh, the reduction of liver in our diets most mm-hmm. people you know aren't aren't eating liver on a very regular right. basis um, but then we see these things like irritability um, low uh, tolerance for stress um, and you know, Things like road rage and all of these examples of like we're just kind of high strung, we maybe have this built up anger and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I almost even wonder if, you know, that supplementing those liver foods might even help us calm down a bit too. I I think it
2: absolutely can. I mean, I almost feel like um when I do a desiccated liver, it's almost like a happy pill. Mm. Uh and I think that's just because of the bee content. Um, same thing, like I've done certain B vitamins that have like just a, a, live B complex in them and it tastes terrible, but it, uh, really makes, it's like instant difference in mood.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so, yeah, the Chinese would say that, uh, the liver totally controls our irritability, anger, resentment, um, same with gallbladder. And, uh, uh it's very likely, you know, the Chinese would agree that, um, our lack of liver in our diet is a huge player.
1: Well, I tell you what, I'm craving liver right now.
2: <laughs> I can't say that I am, but I'm going to go eat it anyway. I don't think
1: I've ever ever actually eaten liver in my life, but yeah. I'm I'm tempted to try it yeah. now or at least maybe try the supplement that you yeah, mentioned. Yeah, well, you know,
2: I find that most people, if you're going to do dietary liver, um, the most palatable way for the majority of people is either do a pate um, or do like something, a, a liver worst. It uh, tends to be a bit more flavorful and a little bit less... Um, Livery. Uh, yeah, a little bit <laughs> less livery, a little bit less bitter. Um, so uh, so anyway, yeah, for many of my people who want to do liver, they, they like to get it in and be fancy that way. Um, mm-hmm. Some people like to just go and do liver and onions just like their grandma used to do. So uh, I'm not one of those, but
1: interesting. Some people are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, Jessica, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come in today and share all of this with us. I've learned so much from you. (laughs) Oh, well, it's uh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, It
2: was uh, really a treat to be here.
1: Yeah. And, you Mm -hmm. know, I know when we had, um, we're kind of planning out our talk for today, we even had several other things on the list we were going to discuss and it ended up um, all being dietary. So I definitely want to have you back on the program. Oh, I would love to be here. (laughs) Absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for having me. I also want to thank all of you for tuning into the podcast today. I hope that you found it informative. If you'd like to learn more about Jessica and maybe find some of those uh, patient resources, you can find her at holisticpainsolutions.com. If you'd like to see the full video interview of this program, along with hundreds of other health and wellness videos, you can check out wellnessplus.tv and start your free two-week trial today. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and come back and join us again soon.
0: The Wellness Plus Podcast, copyright 2018, Target Public Media, LLC, all rights reserved.